Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen. On today's episode, we are speaking with Mark Galliotti, a prolific, longtime observer of Russian history, defense, and security issues. He is a senior non-resident fellow at the Institute of International Relations, Prague, a senior associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute, and the principal director of Mayak Intelligence, a consultancy firm specializing in Russia. And most recently, he is the author of a new book, Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. Mark, welcome to Hot Wash. Great to be here. We were talking about beforehand, I'm, I'm a big fan of your blog and podcast, In Moscow's Shadows. Uh, I I love that the depth with which you go into subjects, and, and clearly you have both a mastery of kind of the big picture and the history. But one thing that's really fascinating to me is all of the little anecdotes, all of the kind of uh, ground conversations that you have with members of the Russian military and the contacts that you've developed over the years. And before we get into the book, which which is really interesting as well, I wanted to just talk about how did your uh, relationship with Russia start and and your approach to gathering information and trying to tell the big picture? Sure. Well, in terms of how I got fascinated with this, it turns bizarre, horrifying, but always fascinating country. In some ways, look, I have no good answer to that. Most people then they have all oh, some kind of family <laughs> connection. Well, my English grandfather did actually serve in the British Expeditionary Force in southern Russia during the Russian Civil War at the end of World War One, but that's not exactly anything that uh, particularly uh, created that hook. No, look, I'm I'm a historian in some ways, very much of the old and primitive school. I'm about the stories, and for me, Russia has always had the best stories. The blood is that much bloodier, but the heroism also that much more glittering. And so I've always been fascinated by this country. First time I went there, my mother took me when I was 14, um, just the beginning of 1980. Uh, so we, we did the usual tourist thing of Moscow and as was then Leningrad. And right. really, just since since then, so you know, I I did my first degree at Cambridge. It's one of those it was a history degree, but it's one of those ones where you don't really get to specialise on it in anything. You do a little bit of everything, so everything from the Mao Mao to Carolingian France. Then, after a, a year working in, in the city of London, I started doing my PhD at the London School of Economics on what was then still the Soviet Union and particularly the impact of the Soviet war in Afghanistan. And this was in the dying days of the USSR, 1988 to 91. And in some ways, they were the best years to be doing PhD research there. Because what happened was everyone knew that thanks to Gorbachev's reforms, all the old rules no longer applied. But no one knew what the new rules were. Right. So with a certain amount of chutzpah and often just stunning ignorance, you know, one could go and talk to people and see archives and so forth that really one shouldn't. But right. just because everything was in chaos. I mean, there were miserable times in the Soviet Union itself. Right. But nonetheless, sort of fascinating. And at that time, look, I, I was much more of a conventional military notions of security scholar. Then through the 1990s, it continued. And in some ways, as the focus shifted from from tanks to banks, um, so too my interests sort of broadened out the notion of, of what security was. Also, while I'd been doing my research, I did a lot of work on the ground talking to veterans of the Afghan war. Mm. And you know, on the whole, these were by definition, discontented, blue collar and scarred. And a certain number of them were drifting into a criminal sort of milieu that we hadn't really thought could exist in a police state, but clearly had. And that's what got me also my first low-level contacts in the world of organized crime. And I mean, again, this is the answer. I mean, going back to this point about the sort of approach to it. I mean, yes, of course, I I read the books, I read the journal articles, and nowadays I, I follow the relevant social media accounts and such like. But to be honest, there's also nothing to beat just sitting down with people, ideally with alcohol as part of the the research instrumentation. Absolutely. Um, I'm not sure quite how that will go under modern uh, ethics rules. um, (laughs) And just simply getting to know them. And and this is the virtue, that I was able to get to know people in the times when that was acceptable and not dangerous. Right. And then as things began to close down, 
yeah, some people fall by the wayside. And since 2014, I've been losing more contacts than gaining. But on the other hand, you know, there are people with whom one actually has a, essentially a personal relationship that, you know, you're either, well, sometimes they're friends, sometimes they're kind of institutional contacts. And sometimes there's just sort of a degree of just, you know, past history. Right. That means one can still get in contact. And although, sadly, as of June, I have been barred from entry. To yeah, I was going to bring that up. You, you, you have the yeah. distinction of being on a list of people. Yeah, who I was on, on the first uh, list of Brits that, that, that they released. Um, and that's, that's a pain because, to be honest, I think it's a lot easier to get on these lists than off. And I imagine that uh, I'll just have to outlive Putin, though I still have high hopes of doing so. <laughs> um, but, but even so, I mean, okay, it's, it's not quite the same as actually being on the ground. Because also, I mean, I just love traveling in this country. Right. And again, you know, it's the conversations you overhear in you know, the, the train compartment when you're traveling to Tula mm. or wherever. Um, but, but basically, it is just that sense of actually trying to kind of embed yourself as much as possible mm. in, in the country and, and, and with the people who have the information that you want to get at. So I've only done a couple of trips to Russia over the years, and uh, I I was there uh, living with some students at uh, Vgeek, the the film school, the Russian film school in '92. So this is right after Yeltsin, and then again more recently, I guess it was 2018. COVID brain, I can't remember if it was 2018 or 2019. They were two different countries, completely. <laughs> I mean, it, it was hard for me to conceive even that they were connected in a way, it, it seemed like a century apart. And, you know, what we experienced in 92 was, I mean, it was difficult to get a hold of a tomato, you know, like, I mean, the food was was really challenging. Uh, everything, as you said, you know, everything was kind of chaos, like what happens now? Um, and, you know, it was really the wheels had come off the bus of the, the old Soviet state and in 2018, you know, at least on the surface, uh, the the commercial district in Moscow uh, was, you know, it, it might as well have been Milan. I mean, it was, it, you know, uh, and one of the things that's really struck me in 2018 as well was uh, how several of the people that we were with were more overtly religious. Uh, you know, one guy who, you know, he would pray every time he started the bus, which may have been a comment on the bus, um, but was also something that I had never imagined really that I would have seen, um, you know, being kind of a child of the Cold War and, and, and in those previous states. And so I, I really resonated with your book in the sense that it, it really is the story of of the attempt to change things, of Putin's attempt to transform the military, to transform the defense establishment, to transform Russia's influence um, from that low of of the Yeltsin period of, of you know, as, as everything kind of fell apart at the end of Gorbachev, uh, to his vision of a uh, a historic Russia that maybe never existed or, you know, of a, a modern way of doing things. And so I, I want to talk about that story a little bit, but uh, I think the book, it, it starts with pre-Putin. It starts with the first Chechen war and listening to and, and reading that, um, it, it was striking all of the echoes of the the current problems in Ukraine. It, it was an attempt to you know, uh, blast through in a kind of blitzkrieg to, you know, a really an underestimation of the, of the enemy and the, uh, the, the problems of embezzlement and, you know, of, uh, of both staffing and supplying the military when the rubber met the road really started to, those problems became very quickly uncovered. Uh, talk about that. And, and did you see, did you intentionally see it that way? How, how is that, what are the connections between uh, that, that first really disastrous uh, engagement with Chechnya versus uh, the beginning of the Ukraine war now? Yes, and there are all sorts of compelling parallels, but the interesting thing is that on the whole, they are in, shall we say, the invisible aspects of warfighting capability. I mean, if one looks on the surface at the Russian army as of January 2022, compared with the Russian army in the 1990s, I mean, these are worlds apart. These are every bit as apart from, as, as one would say, say, Moscow 
in those times, from being this sort of ramshackle, impoverished capital to this glittering modern European one. Well, likewise, by 2022, you know, we had over 20 years of continued and high levels of investment in the military. We had an armed forces, which was basically just over 50% professional volunteer. We had all kinds of shiny new kit that on the whole looks exceedingly impressive when it's rumbling and grumbling its way through Red Square in these, these wonderful parades. But on the one hand, we had exactly all these various endemic what one might think of as, as social organizational issues about corruption, about indiscipline, about the sort of brutal culture of hazing known as Didovshina, which constantly sort of acts as a disruptive force within units. We have the lack of initiative being demonstrated by lower level officers and higher level officers often actually trying to micromanage what they really ought not to. You know, all of these issues which we saw in, 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 in Chechnya, visible in, in Ukraine, and I think that's the point. In some ways, we, we had seen a military reform which focused on the, the overt elements of war fighting. But there's also one other, I think, key parallel. Um, the, the, war, the first war in Chechnya was, was, was almost bound to have been a bit of a disaster, given that the Chechens are, frankly, hard as nails and the Russian military was in a terrible state. But those problems were magnified by the political context, by precisely the fact that there was no real sense of what this war was being fought for. Uh, after all, Boris Yeltsin, the, the first president of Russia, had told the various regions, you know, take as much sovereignty as you can swallow. And then when the Chechens said, fine, we'll do that, that's when he, he sent in the troops because he didn't want the Russian Federation collapsing. But also you had a military leadership, particularly the defense minister, Pavel Grachov, who had been ridiculously overpromoted. I know he was a very, a very able paratrooper, but a very, very bad defense minister who essentially airily promised, yeah, no problem. You know, it, it, it'll be quick and it'll be easy. And a, a president who has no military experience did not know better. Well, likewise, again, in, in some ways, the, the, the initiative, the imperative came from elsewhere with Ukraine. I mean, it wasn't actually that the generals were necessarily pitching that this would be an easy war. It's that Putin was assuming it, and neither the defense minister nor the generals felt able or dared to actually say, Vladimir Vladimirovich, it's not going to be like that. This is a country of more than 40 million people that has been spending eight years preparing for this war, quite frankly. But again, the impact of essentially militarily incompetent political leadership in almost guaranteeing that all the flaws of the Russian military would be magnified and all its very real strengths would be minimized cannot be sort of overlooked. So one of the things that's really interesting about this story of modernization is, is the other characters around Putin and uh, I was fascinated by the uh, the stories about Shoigu and as Shoigu uh, becomes who's the, kind of the Minister of Defense and and revolutionizes or or tries to embark on this campaign of modernization and you tell this uh, anecdote about the uh, Porchenki <laughs> the the uh, uh, square cloths that they used uh, to wrap around their feet tell us about that and that it's such a perfect metaphor for both the state that they were coming in, both mental and literal, and and what kind of capital that earned Shoigu. Yeah, I mean, it's, again, it was a fascinating kind of throwback. On the one hand, you know, if one looks at Russian soldiers, even before Shoigu comes in, they look modern. They're in you know, relatively modern camouflage battle dress. Most of them will have body armor of some kind, you know, all, all the various accoutrements. And yet they were still just like 19th century Russian soldiers, instead of using socks, wrapping their feet in these cloths. Because the idea is that, that the cloth can then be sort of wrapped to be sort of as comfortable as possible, but also then every night you just have a you know, piece of cloth that you just give a quick wash to and hang up and it's dry by the next morning. And that had been this the tradition that no one had really questioned. And in part, the reason they haven't questioned is I have never come across a Russian officer who wore Port Yankee. 
I mean, that might have been in the uniform, but come on now. Of course not. They had socks like the rest of us. Um, and, and yet, you know, one of these things that on one level, you'd think it's entirely trivial. But not, well, nonetheless, one of the things that, that Shoigu had very sort of early on, who, and you've got to understand, Shoigu, look, again, not a military background for all that he wears a uniform and medals these days. But he had been an incredibly effective, what we could think of as organizational turnaround specialist. You know, previously, he'd set up the Ministry of Emergency Situations, which took a whole bunch in the firefighters and all sorts of other different elements, which had been in their day, one of the most dysfunctional parts of the Soviet and then post-Soviet machine. And he'd actually turned it into a really very well-working organization, but also one, most importantly, with a genuine sense of esprit de corps, which matters so much. And and so one of the things that Shoigu did when he came in is precisely to replace these poor Yankee very publicly with socks. And look, for an ordinary Russian grunt, the idea of actually having socks, and obviously you were issued multiple socks, you didn't just have one pair that you had to constantly wash. And that meant you'd also actually have regular laundry services and all these kinds of things, which we might regard as absolutely basic to keeping modern soldiers sort of focused on what they should be focused on, which is, in other words, training for war, not doing laundry. Um, but, but again, as, as a symbol of here was a defence minister who understood detail, who understood the needs of ordinary soldiers and was actually willing to do something about it. That was really significant. And he, both in terms of improving the esprit de corps of, of those serving, he changed or at least contributed to the change in the public's appreciation of the military, correct? I mean, there was this kind of, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I think it gets a little bit too much this this kind of Spartan state where it's cool to be in the military. You know, the the you know, it's it's marketed in a sense, and that that I, I do think that people underestimate the popular support that that Putin might have, or that the general program of of nationalism over the past. Uh, several decades, and that, and that contributed to that. When, is that right? Very much so. Look, Shoigu understands PR. It's one of the things he absolutely does, both his own as, and also that of whatever institution he's involved in. So yes, we, we, we see a big drive to not just, as it were, address the public relations within the military, so that there's a little bit more esprit de corps, and there is improvement, and this sort of culture of hazing is tackled to a slight degree. But, you know, it's, it's, it's addressing something which, after all, has deep roots within military culture, so it's not easy to change. Um, but particularly, he also, yes, manages to, as you say, market the military. And in part, this is entirely practical because they want to have more volunteers to be professional soldiers because they wanted to, I mean, they, they know that they're never going to get rid of conscription. Um, the size of the country, they need to have a certain kind of mobilization base, means that that's inevitable. But nonetheless, in modern warfare, you would much rather have professionals, especially in the more technical arms of service like the Air Force and the Navy. Right. But also, I mean, you mentioned earlier, for example, the return of religiosity in the country. I mean, one of the things that that Shoigu does is very publicly kind of reforge an alliance between the armed forces and the church, which is the Russian Orthodox Church, which in any case has more or less become, frankly, part of Putin's political apparatus by this time. So there is this huge new, I mean, quite extraordinary khaki church of the military uh, this cathedral uh, that's, that's, that's built, which actually has mosaics showing Russian military glory and a, a wall, uh, sorry, a floor that is in, includes uh, melted down elements of Nazi regalia from World War II, all that kind of thing. So, yes, he, he does a lot to build up this image. But again, in many ways, that's actually going to turn out to be a, a tragic mistake because I think it, it, it doesn't just... Uh, you know, do a certain matters or short-term good within the country, it also helps convince Putin, you know, who, the only person who really matters decision-wise, after all, that his military is much, much stronger than it really is. Remember, it's worth noting, Putin himself, no meaningful military experience at all. Um, he did his basic reserve officer training when he was at university in the 1970s, which was always, I mean, you know, unless you are actually someone who's planning on joining the military afterwards, Essentially, you know, everyone who went through this will tell you just how derisorily inadequate it was. Um, and since then, although, frankly, Putin always likes his photo ops, 
in a tank or a plane or, or aiming a gun. But again, he doesn't understand how the military works. Again, I think he too was seduced by Shoigu's PR into thinking that he had a military which was that much more formidable than it really was. I mean, it, it's hard to read the story that you lay out about the the general restructuring of the military, the, the, the organization. And you go into a lot of very, very uh, granular detail in terms of the organization of the units. And I think anyone who's genuinely interested in the structures and, and the uh, political counterbalancing of the different forces between the Spetsnaz and versus traditional artillery, et cetera. Uh, there's a lot of detail in this book that I think a lot of our listeners would do well to, to read. I think for the more general reader that, that, you know, 30,000 foot view is, is there as well. So, uh, you know, there's a, there's a vocabulary at the front with all the acronyms within, with any discussion of the military, you're, you're awash in a sea of acronyms, but thinking about this, all of the organization that happens over the course of these decades, it really is. And I think most people, most Western analysts were genuinely surprised at how much of a, you know, Potemkin village this military was when it hit Ukraine. It It's hard to see Shoigu's, you know, kind of project ending up in that. And yet, we, it seems like Putin got in this information bubble, or like you said, you know, kind of believing his own propaganda. Who is the antipole to Shoigu? Is I mean, is that Petrushev? Is that uh, you know who who is the uh, the opposite of of Shoigu within who who has the ear of Putin, who's really kind of you know basically feeding him this idea that no no it's going to be a cakewalk no one will oppose us because this is the interesting this is the interesting point that Shoigu actually seems to have been opposed to the annexation of Crimea in 2014 look given the the political nature of the situation of course he didn't actually say i'm against it but he you know from the sound of it he did not in any way support it and when he was asked on his views he just simply said i will follow my orders which is as close when you're in Putin's circle and Putin is clearly keen on something, as close as you can really safely get to disagreeing. He was supportive of the deployment into Syria in 2015 because his own Air Force generals were saying, we can do this. And again, that was something that surprised us all. Um, not just that they did this, but that most importantly, that they could sustain it. Again, I was talking to defense analysts at the time who were saying, look, you know, within a few months, we're going to start seeing planes falling out of the air because of bad maintenance and so forth, and logistical um, nightmares emerging. And it didn't. One way or the other, the Russians actually managed that really very effectively. Well, and it, it served as like a, I mean, a vocational school. I mean, it was like, you know, they, they, they were they were there to test everything that they had been thinking up over the years. And, and yeah, and their from, officer corps yeah. as well. Everyone wanted to punch their card. But also it, it seems to be that, that Shoigu, again, I mean, his, his big sin was not to stand up against this. But nonetheless, he does not seem to have been an advocate of the war in the invasion of Ukraine in, in February. And this is it. It's actually very much people like Secretary of the Security Council, Nikolai Patrushev, who in effect has become Putin's national security advisor. There isn't that kind of position within the Russian system. And this other sort of cabal of ex-KGB 68 to 74 year olds, people who are you know very much of the same mindset as Putin, people who still feel genuine sense of embittered resentment, which interestingly, I haven't really encountered in my engagements with, you know, 50-something and early 60-something year old Russian officials. They, they, they may not be fans of the West, but there isn't this true emotional, visceral sense. You know, these are very much the last homo sovieticus remnants who are angry about the loss of empire. And again, these are all people who have no military experience. And this is what's really striking about the actual invasion. And this is why it clearly came from Putin and that coterie of people. This is war as envisaged by spooks, not as fought by generals. Look, the generals, they actually have a much better sense of the weaknesses of their system. And they developed a whole series of responses intended to try and get around it, which you know involves, amongst other things, usually making sure you've got overwhelming 
superiority in numbers, um, you know, but also a lot of kind of boring, practical, bureaucratic minutiae, which is what modern warfare is all about. There's that logistics, old, yeah, exactly. It's that old thing about yeah. you know yeah. professional studies lo- logistics. Well, in this case, the amateurs didn't even study tactics. The amateurs studied dirty <laughs> tricks, and they honestly thought that this could basically be Crimea 2014, just scaled up to a whole country. And and therefore, they did not follow. This, this was not the invasion that the generals would have fought. And in that respect, I mean, these people ended up being Ukraine's secret weapon, guaranteeing that the Russians, in a way, put their, their worst foot forward. So, yes, I mean, I think, you know, it absolutely it came from people like Patrushev within the security apparatus who thought that they could undermine Ukraine, who th- believed that Ukraine wasn't a real country and that, that some sneaky, quick sort of coup de main could actually seize Kiev, impose a puppet government, present the West with a fait accompli, and within two weeks, it will pretty much all be over, apart from a little bit of political mopping up. So when we look at it from from Putin's perspective, he's on a campaign, this this revanchist, like uh, pre-Soviet Russia, this, it's it's not even a Soviet Russia, it's, it's, it's you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a religious oriented, religiously oriented cultural entity that is somehow relevant on the world stage through the threat of force and, you know, it defining its, its uh, security perimeter and its zone of influence with, with uh, the second Chechen war with Georgia, et cetera. But looking at it from the exterior, we have this debate in the West of, was NATO too provocative? Did we push them too far? Are they? Is this all just a response to what we did? Should we not have uh, made the uh, you know expanded NATO and and made it clear that we were at some point in the future willing to to take in Ukraine? How do you engage with that debate? I, I mean, it's it's revisionist, so it's it's unknowable on some level. But how do you break apart that argument and and understand? How much of this is is connected to NATO's plan of of being aggressive in terms of its expansion? Look, I lived in Prague for several years. I could not have turned around and said to the Czechs and the other peoples of of Central Europe, it might annoy the Russians. So although you've done everything that we've asked of you, we will not allow you to come under the same security umbrella. As, as the rest of us. Look, I mean, for Putin, of course, um, Putin is convinced that NATO, well, first of all, that NATO is really just America's Warsaw Pact. Secondly, that it is this kind of conspiratorial and hostile sort of body. He has this very Manichaean, you know, if, if it's lost to Russia, it's gained by someone else. And therefore, if a country joins NATO, somehow that's a sort of a blow to Russia. And that's, I a, think that's, that's a very Cold War thinking. We certainly made yeah, a mistake yeah. in how we communicated a lot. I mean, I think we, we really did, I think, fall foul to a certain degree of self-righteousness about, well, look, we know that NATO is just a, a, a defensive alliance. We know that it poses no threat to Russia. Therefore, what are these silly Russians talking about? We had a tendency to assume that it was all instrumental, that they didn't believe it. It was just because it was for whipping up domestic politics, or they were hoping for some kind of a bargain or whatever. We didn't appreciate the extent to which for people like Putin, who, as I say, a homo sovieticus, bred in the bone, they absolutely, I think, did come to believe this. But to be honest, I mean, look, I, I think that if we want to look at what the real sins of the West are, they were in the 1990s. They were before Putin, where we absolutely, we neglected to really work with Russia. We neglected to make it a true partner. We went for short-term fixes. When in 1993, Boris Yeltsin shelled his own parliament, which was in a com- complete contravention of the constitution, because this was an unpleasant parliament full of unpleasant nationalists and communists elected in Soviet times. We turned a blind eye when Putin, so sorry, when, when Yeltsin then retrospectively rewrote the constitution to say that it had been all right after all. Then in 1996, when Yeltsin was going to lose the election to the communists in all likelihood, the election was rigged. And again, because we didn't want communists to win, so we turned a blind eye. And then we get surprised that Russians think that democracy is a sham, that we are just hypocrites who are just out for our own interests and care nothing for Russia. These are the sorts of things which allowed not necessarily Putin, but a Putin 
to become the next leader. So in some ways, look, there was nothing absolutely inevitable about the, the situation we find ourselves in, this, this terrible war. And in a way, the, the two wars, actually, the, the kinetic war in Ukraine and the wider political and economic one between the West and, and Russia. But there is, on the other hand, a certain sort of tidal drift that brought us that way. And I think you know we, we needed to think about how we were going to shore up genuine democracy in, in Russia in the 1990s, which is you know, means that, yes, yeah, sometimes the people we don't like will win. Well, that's democracy for you. And then once Putin was, it was in power, given that he really didn't un- and doesn't understand the West, he does think in, in his own terms. He assumes that everything is stage managed. He assumes that America basically tells other countries what to do. You know, all of these things. We can't change that. But on the other hand, I think we could have thought more carefully about our communications and how to try and, and make sure that we did our best, at least, to ensure he didn't get this notion that we were actually enemies trying to undermine Russia and undermine his own personal rule. So, I mean, it's a, in some ways, it's a very kind of flabby position. It's, it's nicer to have a definite position on one side <laughs> of the argument or the other. I mean, broadly right. speaking, look, yeah. I mean, this, this is Putin's war. This is not NATO's war. Right. He, he misunderstands NATO, but we did have a small role to play in perpetuating that misunderstanding. And contrast that the initial invasion of Crimea with what's happened now. I mean, in terms of the reaction of of the Ukrainians, even you, you know the picture that you that you paint is very much like, wait a second, wait, oh, oh, okay, oh, oh, hey, there's a bunch of Russians here. Like, okay, uh, sure, okay, take it. You know, I mean, it was, I, I mean, barely a shot. You know, I mean, it, it was really a surprise to everyone involved, and also the the allegiances of, of the people in that part of the country are, are a little bit more complicated. So, I, I mean, I'm thinking thinking of it in terms of encouraging this idea that Putin had about, you know, well, I'll just walk in and take it. Mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit about that first Crimean War. And given that it was a kind of complicated situation, should the West have protested more? Should I mean, there was a lot of rhetoric, but there was really not much. Beyond. We didn't see anything of the kind of sanctions that we have now uh, back then. Uh, take us back to 2014 and, and understanding how Crimea and then eventually Donbass uh, set the stage for where we are. Yeah, I mean, 2014 in Crimea, frankly, one would have been hard pressed to have stage managed a situation that was more propitious for the Russians. Because you have this peninsula in which actually the Russian Black Sea fleet is based. So there are already Russian naval infantry there. You have a population that on the whole actually feels that it would rather be part of of Russia. After all, the Crimean Peninsula had been Russian until the 1950s, when Khrushchev, for really just more than anything else, administrative reasons, transferred it to the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, but still all part of the Soviet Union. But again, so I think, you know, pretty much the interesting thing that we find is even even vehement critics of Putin's in Russia still also believe that Crimea is rightfully theirs. But as I said, on the whole, so too did the population of Crimea. They felt with frankly very good reason that they had been neglected by Kyiv ever since independence. They looked at the quality of life in Russian, in the Russian mainland, which was substantially higher. And then meanwhile, the Ukrainian state had essentially collapsed after the Euromaidan, the revolution of dignity, end of 2013, beginning of 2014. So that no one really knew who was in charge. No one was, you know, a lot of people were uncertain about the new regime. And the Russians were just able to just simply sort of take over control. And again, they could do so essentially relying on their very best troops. I mean, what we called the little green men, which the Russians call the polite people, the special forces who sort of fanned out with, with no insignia or whatever, which again, so much is made of that, that, oh my God, they, they weren't wearing badges. Well, frankly, special forces operating in the field you know, frequently won't actually have big national flags sticking on their arms. It wasn't really that sophisticated a technique. The West and, and really did, I mean, did it really cause that much confusion? I mean, I... <laughs> uh, it did. Well, I think also because the Russians just flatly denied that it was anything to do with them. 
And look, again, uh, lying at the start of a war is not that unusual. But still, it did. It it gave them basically 24, 36 hours grace in which people were, you know, were they mercenaries? Was this a maverick operation by the Black Sea Fleet without Moscow's say-so? All these, you know, all these uncertainties were, were swirling around. And again, that crucial window of opportunity to basically lock down the peninsula. And from that point on, it was really just mopping up. So, I mean, that, that, that was this, as I said, perfect storm of, of, you know, situation, of a situation that, that worked so well for the Russians. And absolutely, it, it seduced Putin into a sense that this kind of thing was, was much easier than it really was. The West, yeah, we did not exactly cover ourselves with glory because we managed to, on the one hand, not recognize any validity to the Russians' position. And, you know, in fairness, one could say, and look, I mean, it's dangerous because it looks as if I'm beginning to sound like a, like a, a Putin excuser here. But, you know, if, if we believe in self-determination of, of peoples and nations and territories, although clearly the referendum that was held under the Russian gun was in no way legal, but nonetheless, it's actually quite hard to argue that this was not actually something that was done in line with the desire of the majority of the population there. Um, but, you know, we, we, we didn't accept that, and understandably, because it was against international law what was done. But on the other hand, our response was frankly pretty pathetic. I mean, it actually took later on the shooting down of the airliner MH17 over the Donbass right. to really sort of trigger proper sanctions. Right. So I think this is, again, this is the problem. What has happened is, therefore, from Putin's point of view, he had an exaggerated notion of how easy it was to just simply take territories he had an exaggerated notion of how far the West were basically sanctimonious hypocrites who would wag a finger but do nothing more than that. He had an exaggerated idea of just how fragmented the Ukrainians were. And he had an exaggerated idea of just how good his troops were. Because again, these had all been, you know, basically Spetsnaz, naval infantry and, 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 and similar sort of pick, pick of right. the bunch. And the Donbass conflict... I mean, this this is a really messy, difficult kind of conflict to uh, to really sort of explore. It was a bit of a civil war. One can't get away from that. It was also a bit of a kind of a freelance intervention by forces who were not necessarily operating with the, the Kremlin sanction. And then very quickly, it also became a Russian, uh, you know, deniable or denied at least, if not very deniable, right. military intervention. Right. Um, but again, that, that was always, it wasn't about the Donbass. It was just about trying to cause trouble for Ukraine to try and get right. Ukraine to come back into, into the fold. But uh, in, in, in some ways, that was never the real war. And then when, when, when Putin does invade, again, he thinks he can just basically scale up Crimea to a country of more than 40 million people, a country of people who actually were more united than they've ever been, thanks to the pressure of Russian aggression. And who, as I mentioned before, have been basically spent eight years, ever since 2014, expecting this war, planning for it, and planning very well. Training extensively with NATO, improving their command structure, their, I mean, everything. Uh, and precisely because they also, they understood how the Russians fight. And therefore, they had you know, very much specifically built a whole series of tactical responses to take fullest advantage of the weaknesses that they saw among, in the Russians. So, I, and, and I think that, again, talking about that hesitation on the West and the conflicting ideas of, oh, well, we're all for self-determination over here, aren't we? Yeah, but, oh, but Russian history is really kind of complicated and they were a country, but now they're separate countries and were they separate countries before? And it allows this uh, this space for people to parrot Putin's version of history. I mean, you know, his his recent uh, essay on history and the history of Ukraine and, and his real misuse of, of history, uh, which is both intentional and also perhaps he, you know, he's, he's completely believing it, but it echoes on the West. You know, one of our our uh, finest uh, international history professors, Elon Musk, you know, weighing in on, uh, oh, well, yes, of course, Ukraine has always been Russia, so we should just give it back to them. Um, talk about, uh, as an actual expert on the history of Russia, how should we think about 
the the complicated history of a people who is a separate people, but also has at times been culturally deeply intertwined, both by familial bonds and political bonds with Russia and their desire to both see it as a part of uh, uh, of Russia, oh, you know, ultimately, of course, I mean, the people of Ukraine have uh, a voice in this, and they're they're exercising that voice. But uh, talk about Putin's understanding of that history and and how that kind of infects the dialogue about what rights Ukraine has in this conflict. Yeah, this is it. Putin is fascinated by history. Uh, he draws historical parallels with himself, most recently with Peter the Great. Um, Peter the Great was a, a very tall individual, and Putin is not. But on the other hand, he's a really bad historian. He doesn't understand history. And yes, so, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's both a question of a very, very instrumental use of history to justify the politics of the moment, such as precisely by his uh, lengthy and deeply uh, flawed essay about the interconnection of Ukrainian and Russian history. So, so for those who haven't read it, just sum up his, his what is flawed about his central thesis. I mean, we could do an hour thesis, about this. But. Well, at, at least. Yeah, I mean, look, his central thesis is that Ukraine isn't a real country. It's kind of a hodgepodge of bits taken from other countries, that it's always really been part of the sort of the Russian cultural and political patrimony. And frankly, it's all Lenin's fault. The Soviet Bolshevik revolutionary leader who actually created an independent within the Russian, uh, within the Soviet Union, Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. And that was, in a way, one of Lenin's many sins. A time bomb was placed under the Soviet Union, and, and, the, and now Russia is, in a way, fixing Lenin's mistake. Um, look, the, uh, sort of, there's like 5% of reality struggling somehow through 95% pseudo-history and retrospective political justification. But yes, look, essentially, the history of Russia, let alone the wider post-Soviet area, though at what point we can get away with talking about it post-Soviet, um, the sooner the better. Um, you know, th These boundaries are often artificial. There are communities on both sides. I mean, one of the phrases that's often misunderstood, I mean, the Putin once said about the downfall of the Soviet Union being one of the, the great geopolitical tragedies of the 20th century. Now, he was not actually sort of in suggesting that he wants to recreate it. But what he was very specifically referring to was the fact that there were ethnic Russian communities that were then left, in effect, stranded in other countries, from Estonia to Ukraine to Kazakhstan, and all kinds of different, so again, it's the usual you know, post-colonial, in, in some ways, this is, this is the story of post-Raj India, this is the story of Africa, you know, empires tend to actually draw artificial boundaries that then become very problematic once the entire Middle East, given it. yeah, or, ah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that, that the issue is just to accept the degree to which, you know, you, you have in many ways an equally troublesome notion now that Ukraine has always been independent. Of course, it hasn't been. One has to recognize that there has been this, this past mingling. And frankly, if Putin had been anything like the sort of shrewd geopolitical mastermind we're sometimes told, he absolutely wouldn't have invaded. He would have relied on the natural processes of, you know, interconnectivity through, you know, ethnicity, families, trade, and such like to to maintain a certain degree of, of his claws in in Ukraine. Well, he's 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 burnt all those bridges now. Um, but the point is that look, history doesn't just stop. You know, all all countries have at different times expanded and contracted, taken over new territories, um, lost others. Um, you know, I think one, one just has to accept that, yes, history informs the present, but it doesn't actually define the present. And this is the point which, which you know, go, going back to the question of, of Ukraine, look, Ukraine has had so many false starts at creating genuine nationhood. And again, you know, before 2014, there were really strong divisions between the essentially Catholic Europe-looking west of the country, you know, with the city of Lviv as its real sort of heart, and uh, you know, a very east of the country that still looked to Russia, where actually Russian was spoken rather than Ukrainian, much more in the way of Russian orthodoxy. You know, this 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 has played out time and time again. 
the war, which in a way, if we think of it as the long war from 2014, is what has really genuinely made Ukraine. And when you see the president, current president Zelensky, I mean, who voted for Zelensky? Actually, he, his support was drawn from across the country, defying all the old boundaries. And it's one of the reasons why, I mean, with admittedly tongue firmly in cheek, I have suggested that Ukrainians should be putting statues of Vladimir Putin in their main squares, because in many ways, Putin is the father of the modern Ukrainian nation for that very reason. So just to bring this to a close, uh, we're still firmly in the middle of the war. Uh, it seems like there's probably little likelihood of a, a, a cool off in the winter. Um, again and again, we hear on the pontificators in the West about moving towards negotiation, trying for some sort of diplomatic uh, settlement. And how do you think about Putin as a person on the opposite side of a table trying to come to assurances and agreements when just the history in the recent history has been so catastrophic. I mean, the violation of civilian corridors, uh, you know, the, the just, you know, ritual violation of, of any kind of ceasefire. Uh, how do you understand that? I mean, obviously, all negotiations have to come from a position of strength on at least one side. Uh, and so I think both sides are trying to be that side that is coming to the table from a position of dominance. Uh, but but how do you think about Putin as, as a partner in some sort of diplomatic solution? Yeah, it's obviously very difficult to do so. And, and to be honest, at the moment, I think that although the Russians claim that they're happy to talk whenever, and President Zelensky outlined his own peace plan outline at uh, the G20 summit, I think that the two sides are still so far apart. There is just no point in getting them together at, at present. I mean, I, I wish that were not the case, but but I think it is. Because the thing is, at present, both sides feel that time is their friend. The Ukrainians, you know, which are, after all, they're, they're becoming increasingly confident, just as essentially the, the Russian military is devolving into a late Soviet one. The Ukrainian military is becoming a real 21st century one. And therefore, you know, they, they feel that they will be able to, as it were, shape the realities on the ground without needing to talk to the Russians about it. Likewise, Putin is putting his faith in being able to outlast Ukraine and perhaps most importantly, the West because he knows that if the West stops sending billions of dollars, euros and pounds in financial and military support, then actually Kiev's position becomes a lot harder. So in some ways, both of them, although they're, they're, they're willing to claim that they're happy to talk, neither of them is willing to make any kind of major concessions to the other. And the thing is, yeah, how can one have any faith in Putin? Well, the answer is one can't. That does not mean that you cannot have at some point in the future meaningful peace talks. What it does mean, though, is that the pattern that has been set in the past of essentially broad undertakings of guarantees with nothing really to back them up cannot obtain. Now, in fairness, I mean, the, the Ukrainians, it's interesting. I mean, they're, they're even slightly, they have been backpedaling from their demand to join NATO in the sense of they feel that actually they are going to be in a position to guarantee their own security in due course. You have Zelensky talking explicitly about he sees that Ukraine could become a big Israel in terms of a country which, with the right kind of assistance and, and backing, will will be an indomitable fortress. Well, that's, that's quite possibly true. But of course, like Israel, that will actually require you know, long-term continued support from the United States and, and from Europe. But I think this is it. it. It's actually going to be a situation in which not only will there have to be a deal which Ukraine feels it can live with, and really the only thing that might potentially be on the table is the future of Crimea. Um, there is the possibility that some kind of deal will be struck to allow Russia to maintain control of Crimea, so long as the people of Crimea seem to want to remain Russian. But for the rest of the occupied territories, they will have to revert to, to Kiev's control. But at the same time, you know, whether it's actually through NATO membership or whether it's through some other kind of Article 5 style deal that does not just simply say, we guarantee it, trust us, but much more explicitly says what would happen in the case of a further you know, 
Russian attack. And which just to, in probably in, in the name of keeping Putin, sort of giving Putin something, would probably also say that if, if Ukraine invaded Russia, there would also be sanctions against Ukraine. Not that I don't think anyone expects it to happen, but you know, just to kind of maintain the pretense of, of, of equanimity there. Um, but I think, I think this is it. We, we need to have a peace process which recognizes the failures of the past rather than, as too often tends to happen, simply replicates those failures. If, as so frequently happens in the U.S., uh, fatigue sets in in terms of supporting economically, militarily, can NATO be that backstop without the U.S. in terms of supplying ammunition and, and money to Ukraine? I mean, the blunt answer is no. I mean, if, if one looks at the, the levels of support, I mean, the United States has far outstripped everyone else. Then we have the United Kingdom, and then we have the various countries of Europe. This is another of the areas in which, to be perfectly honest, um, continental Europe, at least, I, you know, maybe it's just simply because of the sort of nature of my passport, I, I would exempt Britain from that, because I think we can be quite proud, actually, in the UK, of, of the scale and the speed of our response. Um, but continental Europe really has continued to ride on America's coattails. And the problem is, look, actually, I don't think that the real issue will come from the United States. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing, actually, just how even post midterms, you know, Congress is absolutely united. In some ways, Congress is actually more bullish than the administration. Hmm. You know, I almost feel that every time the administration asks for one, one billion for Ukraine, Congress forces an extra billion on. Um, actually, it's in Europe that the real tensions are. And in part, that's for bad reasons. And in part, it's for good. I mean, Europe is also having to deal with the issue of Ukrainian refugees, which America isn't. Europe is having to wean itself off its previous dependence on gas. And in part, that's by buying quite expensive American liquefied natural gas. Now, you know, I'm I'm not actually pointing the finger here, but I'm just saying this is exactly the kind of issues which have a tendency to cause tensions. And so I think that's where the real concern is. It's not that anyone is going to say we don't care about Ukraine. It's that politicians, especially if this war looks as if it is going to drag on and on and on, they will be looking at electorates who are saying, Look, yeah, 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 we, we think the Ukrainian cause is great, but we want more public spending on hospitals or on industrial support or on pensions or, or whatever else. And that money has to come from somewhere. And so I think this is the real concern. It's actually going to be about maintaining Europe, not because Europe necessarily sort of provides the lion's share of the funds, but that once Europe starts to fragment, that's when I think one will get the pressures in the United States. Now, why should we be the ones to bail out the Europeans again? This is a European continental problem. Let them step up. And on that hopeful and uplifting note, <laughs> uh, we will have to end it there for today. The book is Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. And of course, I'd also recommend our listeners check out the podcast in Moscow's shadows. Mark Galliotti, thank you so much for joining us on Hot Wash. Oh, it's been my pleasure. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. It makes a big difference for us. And let us know what you think about the podcast. Is there a topic or a guest you would like us to talk to? You can follow us on Twitter at HotWashRCD or send us an email with your comments to editors at RealClearDefense.com. In the show notes, You can find a link to sign up to receive The Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For everyone here at Real Clear Defense, I'm John Sorensen.